It has been several weeks in a row that I was not the preacher here at church. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. I like when we have the opportunity to hear from some different voices. I also like it when I have the opportunity to go on vacation, which I did. Uh, and then I also took some time of uh, personal private uh, retreat time to do some praying uh, and some planning uh, and things like that. And the ability to do that without having also the assignment of preparing a message or preparing a sermon was a wonderful blessing. So thank you. Thank you for allowing me uh, that time. That being said, can I confess to you that I really like to preach? Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad to be back in a place that is uh, very special and very important to me. Uh, and we're going to begin today on a new series of messages that will take us right up through Labor Day. Um, I have to share with you a memory I have, a very, very distinct image that is in my mind from childhood. I can remember growing up and being in my Aunt Joanne's kitchen. I can picture her refrigerator. You might think that was because I was prone to the occasional snack, but Aunt Joanne was a, a better babysitter than that. The reason I remember Aunt Joanne's refrigerator is because like most suburban refrigerators, it had a million magnets on the front of it and on the side, but there was one magnet in particular that I've just, it always stuck in my mind. It had a saying on it, and I've seen the saying many, many times since then. I, I still see it every once in a while on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or a sign on somebody's over their door or something like this. But the first time I encountered it was on this magnet in the upper left corner of the side of my Aunt Joanne's Refrigerator. Do you have a few images like that from childhood that are just distinct for no apparent reason? Well, that's this image that I have of this magnet. The magnet had this saying on it, as I said, and, and, and this is what it said. The magnet said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever heard that saying? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And that simple series of three phrases, I think, really is what we mean when we talk about in the church, when we talk about salvation by faith. We are proclaiming our belief that we are saved. Why? Because we have put our faith in the trustworthiness of God's word. God said it. I believe it. Case closed. Issue is settled, right? That settles it. And I think for many of us, this kind of simple framework is the way in which we came to faith. We chose simply to believe that what God has said is true. We encountered the word of God and, and ultimately we decided to trust that what he has said is true and that settled the matter and, and therefore we are saved. In a sense, what we did is we surrendered ourselves to his sovereignty and to his authority. And I suppose that's a pretty straightforward way to come into faith, whether we're chronologically children or whether we're adults, but in our faith journey, still children, still just beginning. It often begins as simple and straightforward as that, but life has a way, doesn't it? 
life has a way of making things more and more complicated over time. In places that once seemed to be simply black or white, we begin to see shades of gray. We begin to see things that just aren't as clear as we once thought they were. And I think if we're being honest, most of us have found these shady areas in places where we struggle with portions of our faith. And how does that happen? Well, along the way, maybe we read a challenging passage of the Bible that we'd never heard before. And it makes us go, huh. Or or maybe we encounter a difficult circumstance in our life or a, a moral dilemma that doesn't seem to have a simple answer. I mean, it used to be as simple as we'll turn the other cheek and then one day we get punched (laughs) and now it doesn't seem so simple. Or maybe we hear some fool preacher say some things that don't line up with what we thought we knew to be true about God and we go, huh. And so even if we started out by saying, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Sometimes along the way, if we're being honest, we're more inclined to ask questions like, well, what exactly did God mean when he said it? Or what if I'm not so sure I believe it? And the framework of our faith gets more and more complicated. And as that happens, we feel less and less settled. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, doesn't seem sufficient anymore. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I believe very, very strongly there's nothing wrong with asking questions of God. There's nothing wrong with digging into the nuance of our faith. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that you and I have to check our brains at the door and that we can't continue to be critical thinkers. But at the same time, We need to be careful that we're not making things more complicated than God wants them to be. There is a beauty in simplicity, isn't there? Believe it or not, this isn't just a modern problem. The things were pretty similar for a lot of believers about a generation or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because for many of them, life had gotten more complicated than they expected it to be. For many of them, the morals and the ethics that they had heard that Jesus taught somehow weren't as simple to live out as they sounded when they first heard them. And there was this new generation of supposedly Christian preachers rising up, kind of riding on the wave of Jesus's popularity. But some of these folks were confusing the matter with some very, very, very bad teachings. And so it's against that backdrop that we find John. John, the apostle, one of the 12, the one who walked most closely with Jesus. John is now a very, very elderly man. He's likely the very last of the apostles to still be alive. This John, in this scenario, writes a letter. Actually, it's not even so much of a letter as it is an essay. He didn't address it to anyone in particular, and he didn't sign his name at the end. He didn't send any particular personal greetings. He just wrote this essay because he wanted the church to read it. He wanted to set some things straight. 
And he wanted a lot of us to know what he had to say. You'll find it in your Bibles as the book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's his account of the life of Christ. But there near the end of the New Testament, 1 John. More than anything in 1 John, I think John wanted to remind us that our faith in Jesus need not be as complicated as we sometimes make it. He's encouraging us in his essay to remember the simple, the uncomplicated, the foundational truths about things like love and hate, things like right and wrong, things like guilt and grace, things that really are black and white, no gray area in between. We're going to read through his letter in the course of the next several weeks together, but before I begin reading today, I want to tell you one more story. Maybe you'll remember this one. In 1988, our nation was going through the cycle of a presidential election. President Reagan had completed his two terms. And so his vice president, George Bush, the senior, was the leading Republican candidate and indeed won the nomination. Uh, vice president, soon to become President Bush, had chosen as his running mate, Dan Quayle. How many of us remember? Senator Dan Quayle from Indiana. And so Dan Quayle was the vice presidential nominee from the Republican Party. So Bush and Quayle were on one side of the ticket and they were running against Michael Dukakis who had chosen for his vice presidential candidate the very seasoned, the very experienced senator from Texas, Lloyd Benson. And so about a month before the election, the vice presidential candidates, the vice presidential candidates had their debate. It was Quayle versus Benson. And in the weeks and days leading up to the debate, many had been saying that Senator Quayle, who was only 41 years old at the time, Senator Quayle was too young and too inexperienced to be an effective vice president. They were saying, we can't afford to have this young whippersnapper how many of us appreciate that 41-year-olds were considered young whippersnappers? We can't afford to have this guy one heartbeat away from the Oval Office. And that accusation had come up again and again and again. So predictably, in the debate, the question was posed directly to Senator Dan Quayle. Aren't you too young? Aren't you too inexperienced to have this job? And Senator Quayle, in his response, said this. I wrote this down because I wanted to quote it exactly. He said, I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. Jack Kennedy. Hmm. At that point, Senator Benson looked across the podium at his opponent, and he said, Senator... I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Say it with me if you know it. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. Do you remember the moment? The room went up in uproarious applause. And it stands today as one of the greatest moments in debate forums. Not great enough, Dukakis and Benson lost the election by a landslide. But at that moment, it appeared that they had won the day. I bring it up because that is essentially how John begins his essay in the Bible. 
He's saying, are you feeling confused about the message of Jesus? Are you confused by all these folks trying to invoke the name of Jesus as if they know what he was talking about? Well, I've got some things to say. And how do we know that we can trust what John says? Well, John gives us a very simple answer in the opening lines of his letter. He says, it's not complicated at all. You can trust me because I knew Jesus. I walked with Jesus. You see, others could talk about the miracles, but John was among the select few who knew what the loaves and the fishes tasted like. Others could speculate about the meaning of the cross, but John was one of the only ones left who actually was there to hear the screaming that night. Others can wonder about the resurrection, but John held the burial cloths in his hands on Sunday morning. He knew what they felt like. So maybe it's worth listening to what John has to say. I'm reading now from the book of 1 John. We'll read the entirety of chapter 1 and into a couple of verses of chapter 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to this word as it is proclaimed Today, Lord, remove any confusing obstacles from our ears as we hear what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. So the first thing John wants to do here, I think, is he wants to uncomplicate the message of Jesus. What is the message of Jesus? Is the message of Jesus the secret to overthrowing the foreigners and establishing our nation as a superpower? Is the message of Jesus a blessing of prosperity and wealth for those who follow it? Is the message of Jesus some sort of secret wisdom for only a select few of God's favorite people? You see, you could have found people in John's day teaching all of those things. 
we could find people today still teaching all of those things. And so the questions are valid, but John gives us a very clear answer. He says, no, no, no. The message of Jesus has nothing to do with any of those things. John says the message of Jesus means the fullness of life together forever. I'm going to say that again. The message of Jesus means the fullness of life together forever. It really is that simple. He said, we proclaim to you the eternal life so that you also may have fellowship with us. John says the message of Jesus brings eternal life with God for all who will receive it. And John's mission is to go on proclaiming that message so that more will hear, so that more will receive. I want to take just a moment, though, to discuss what we're even talking about here when we talk about eternal life. Eternal life is a concept that is central to the New Testament and one that was very important to John in particular. In fact, likely the most quoted verse in your entire Bible comes from John's other writing. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is central to what John wants us to understand as the message of Jesus, eternal life, eternal life. But what does it mean when God's word speaks of eternal life for his people? Most of us probably think first about going to heaven after we die. But I need to tell you that what John is actually talking about, what he's describing here is so much more than that. Because if you think about it, there are actually a few different ways to understand the word life. Life can mean, at its most obvious state, the point of being physically alive. It's the opposite of death. Uh, life is having breathing lungs and a beating heart. The authors of the New Testament would have called this kind of life bios. That's the term that gives us words like biology or biography. Life. But life can also refer to our consciousness, our thoughts. It can refer to the function of our minds. Uh, you might want to use the word soul to describe this aspect of what life is. And the authors of the New Testament would have known this as well. They would have called this sukha. It's the root word that gives us words like psychology. That's a kind of life. Those two versions of life, the bios and the sukkah, they don't always go hand in hand. Sometimes injury or disease robs us of our sukkah life before our bios life actually gives way. Our, our brain stops functioning before our heart stops beating. Well, in the other way, in other instances, people sometimes report having experiences of consciousness during periods where they weren't breathing and their heart wasn't beating. They experienced having sukkah life when they temporarily, at least, didn't have bios life. The two don't always go hand in hand. But John isn't saying either one of those things. He's not saying that God gives us eternal bios. He's not saying God's, Jesus' message is that God will allow you to breathe forever. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that the message of Jesus 
gives you sukkah life for eternity. He's not saying that you'll have eternal consciousness. That sounds very fortune cookie-ish, doesn't it? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying either one of those things. John says that what we actually receive by the message of Jesus, it's not an eternal bios. It's not an eternal sukkah. It's an eternal zoe. Zoe is another word that means life. We have a zoe right here. Here's our Zoe. <laughs> but, but John referred to a Zoe and he meant life. And it doesn't merely mean breathing lungs or a beating heart or even a thinking brain. Zoe is the ancient word for the fullness of a life well lived. You can think of it this way. There's, there's living and then there's living. You know what I mean? Can I do that again? Because I practiced that, and I want to do that again. There, there, there's living, and then there's living. And that's what John is talking about. He's talking about eternal living. Eternal living. Zoe is a divinely blessed life. It's a joy-filled life. It's a flourishing life of fullness and God-directed purpose. If you think about it, our natural lives, our, our bios, sometimes are, are very tortured. We talked about that today. We know pain. We know anguish in our sukkah. We know pain in our bios. Right? We know these things. Why on earth would a good God give us that for all eternity? That's not what John says. He says, oh, no, 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 no. There's a life that's worth living and you live it forever in Jesus. Not a biological or a psychological life that goes on forever, but a divinely empowered existential abundance that can never be taken away from you. And here's the kicker. This is my favorite part. Are you ready for my favorite part? This is my favorite part. John says, you don't have to wait for death for your life to begin. You don't have to wait to die for Zoe to become your reality. It's eternal. That's what he said. And eternal means for all times. When you come to faith in Jesus, your eternal life begins right now. You see, too many Christians, I think, are living with the mindset that it's our assignment to drudge through the brokenness of this life with the vague hope that maybe when we die, we'll be whisked away to heaven. That's not good news. That's miserable. It's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus gives me the freedom to step into eternity today. I love that phrase. I hear it sometimes that at memorial services, funeral services, things like that. Our, our dearly beloved brother, our dearly beloved sister stepped into eternity. And I, I've never stood up in a funeral and said, I object! <laughs> but when I hear it, I remind myself, no, no, they, they didn't step into eternity when they breathed their last breath. They stepped into eternity when they received the message of Jesus. I look at my Christian brothers and sisters in this room today who have received the message of Jesus. You walk in eternity right now. You walk in the fullness of an eternal Zoe right now. Someday your bios will stop. Someday your sukkah will stop. But your Zoe will go on and on and on. 
I need to be careful here because I'm not suggesting that there are no bodies and there is no life in the resurrection. That would be a heresy. You'd have to tie me up and burn me at a stake out back. There is life after death. There is bios after death. There is suka after death. All of that is true. I'm just saying that's not what John is talking about here. Do we understand that? He's talking about the fullness. What did I say earlier? Was it living? He's talking about living, and he's saying it starts now. It starts now when you receive the message of Jesus. Christians, remember this. Eternal life isn't just life after death. First, eternal life means life before death. In his other text, the Gospel of John, he famously records Jesus as saying, Oh, the thief came to kill and to steal and to destroy, but I came that you all would have Zoe, and that you would have this Zoe to its fullness. That's what he said, and that's what he's referring to now. But in order to live into that Zoe that Jesus gives us, there are a few simple principles we need to understand. And the first one is this. Sin cannot exist in God's presence. Sin just simply cannot exist in the presence of God. John reminds us of this in a very simple, uncomplicated phrase. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He doesn't say in him there's very little darkness. He doesn't say in him you can hardly find but a hint of darkness. He doesn't say any of those things. He's very clear. He's very uncomplicated. In him there is no darkness darkness at all. 0.0 full stop. When things get challenging in life, our fallen nature begins to complicate our ethical standards. You know, maybe the ends really do justify the means. I mean, maybe it's okay to bend the rules if we're trying to achieve a greater purpose. Maybe there's a little bit of devil in every good angel. (laughs) And before long, the questions of what's actually right and what's actually wrong, these questions get more and more complicated. And then something even more insidious tends to happen. We start to wonder, is there any chance that maybe God himself deals in some of the same shades of gray that we do? Is God sometimes willing to tolerate even maybe just a little? I mean, a little. I'm not talking a little bit of evil if it furthers his agenda? Or maybe it's worse than that. Maybe God is playing with us. (laughs) Maybe God is humored by our struggle sometimes. Maybe he toys with us for his own entertainment. Maybe he leaves us to deal with these problems on our own. Is God even listening? Maybe. Maybe he's not always shooting straight with us. Could any of those things be? Could it be possible? I think if we're being honest, all of us has wondered at one point or another. But John is here to give us a clear, uncomplicated answer to that question. In him, there is no darkness at all. None. Homer Simpson. Homer once asked his overtly evangelical Christian neighbor, Ned Flanders. Homer said, I got a question for you, Ned. Could God himself microwave a burrito so hot that he himself could not eat it? Pretty good question, Homer. 
Could God microwave a burrito so hot that he himself couldn't eat it? And see, the problem with that question is if you say, well, no, he couldn't do that, then you're insinuating that God is limited in his ability to microwave burritos. But if you say, yes, God could do that, he could make a burrito just that hot, then you're insinuating that God is limited in his ability to eat burritos. God bless Homer, he's one of the greatest theologians of the last generation. But it's a conundrum, it's a classical conundrum. We encounter it in different non-cartoonish ways, different ways, but it's based on this assumption that there is nothing that God cannot do. We even teach our kids to sing that song. You know, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. Okay, right, 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 right. Well, here's, I'm just gonna say this, and I'm not, I'm not trying to provoke, I'm not trying to provoke, I'm giving you good theology today, okay? There are some things God can't do. I don't know how it pertains specifically to burritos, but there are some things that God cannot do. Let me give you a few examples. God cannot lie. He cannot lie. It's important that we understand that. It's not that God doesn't like to lie. It's not that God chooses not to lie. God cannot lie. And here's why God cannot lie. Because when he says things, the universe obeys. And so if he says it, it is. God says, let there be light, and the universe says, okay, let there be light. As soon as God speaks it, it's truth. It's not that God follows the truth. Our speaker last week, Justin, said this, and I got all kinds of blessed in the back row right there. It's not that God follows the truth. God defines the truth. He cannot lie, because the minute he says it, it's true. It's not the only thing God can't do. God cannot stop loving you. He cannot. We, in our sin and in our brokenness, sometimes worry and wonder, God, have you stopped loving me? I'm worried that what I've done is going to make you stop loving me. And the response to that is, even if he wanted to, which he doesn't, by the way. But even if he wanted, he couldn't. He cannot stop loving you. He can't lie. He can't stop loving you. He cannot sin. He cannot sin. And to our point, he cannot allow sin to survive. He just simply cannot. There are some things that God cannot do. But that presents a problem for us. See if you can follow this, this logic. The message of Jesus is eternal life with God. We already said that. And now we're saying that God cannot coexist in sin, that, with sin. That, that sounds great until we remember the problem. And the problem is this. Every person is stained with sin. Well, now we got a problem. <laughs> because the message of Jesus means eternal life with God, but God cannot coexist with sin, but we're all covered with sin. We've got a problem. We've got a problem. John said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is a universal problem. It's not complicated at all. There's no shades of gray here. It's a black or white issue. And in this case, it's, it's black, it's darkness. Some of us have tried to solve the problem in our own minds, the sin problem. We've made and invented shades of gray. We've said these sins are worse than those sins. And so if you stick with, with, with those sins, you're probably okay. You just need to 
avoid these sins. Uh, Some of us have said, well, my sin isn't as bad as your sin, so I think I'm fine, but good luck to y'all. Some of us have said, well, if you try really hard, I mean, if you really put some energy and effort to it, you can eventually get rid of your sin. Some people have even said that sin itself can be overlooked as long as our intentions were pure. You know, if your heart's in the right place, you know, things like that. We've come up with all of these complicating issues, all of these shades of gray to deal with what John says is really a black and white issue. And that is every one of us is covered with the filth and the stain of sin. It's not really very complicated. Every person is stained with sin. I just recently finished reading a book written for pastors and other types of Christian leaders The author of this book suggested that uh, folks who find themselves in in leadership in Christian ministry, whether it's a pastor or a missionary or somebody else doing some sort of kingdom-oriented work, we should change our titles on our business card. My title is Lead Pastor, Hobson Road Community Church. This particular author suggested that what we need to do is change our title to Chief Sinner, Hobson Road Community Church. How would that look on the new website? Meet the staff. Click. Well, our chief sinner is Pastor Dan Martinson. And our associate sinner is Cat Hall, who's in charge of sinning in front of the children and families. Uh, His point, though, is that when it comes to sin, we need to remember that every one of us is on the same playing field. Actually, he's borrowing from the Apostle Paul, who wrote, I am chief among sinners. <laughs> While all the other speakers were bragging about how righteous they were, Paul said, I'll tell you what my title is. I'm chief sinner. That's where I stand on the org chart. Can I address that for a minute? I mean, as it pertains specifically to Hobson Road Community Church, I am the lead pastor here. And I know that because of that, there are a lot of people in this room that look up to me. And I'm humbled by that. I, I, I honor that. But please don't ever forget that I'm a sinner just like you are. And as you remember that, please forgive me for the ways in which I have failed to represent Jesus to you. When I ask you to forgive me, what I'm asking is that you would actually forgive me. I'm asking specifically that you wouldn't overlook my sin, that you wouldn't justify my sin. I'm asking that you would actually forgive me of my sin. And to do that, you have to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. Don't pretend like my sins don't exist or they're somehow less a problem than your sins. Don't justify or minimalize my sin in your own mind because of the title on my business card. I am a sinner and I am lost and awash in my own filthiness. And I am in desperate, desperate need of a savior. And to claim otherwise would be a complex web of lies. The truth might be sobering, And it might be hard for us to say out loud, but it's far less complicated. But here's the good news today. There's still hope for sinners like me. There's still hope for sinners like me because John's message doesn't end with that thought. Yes, he says every person is stained with sin, but Christ has it covered. Christ has it covered. 
He says, we have an advocate with the Father. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And he's giving us an image here, one that we probably pick up on pretty readily. He's giving us the image of a courtroom where our eternal fate is being decided. He's already told us about this gift that comes with the message of Jesus, the eternal life, the Zoe that we were intended for, but the question hangs in the balance, will we inherit it or won't we? And so he places us in a courtroom where that very issue is being decided. Will we live our Zoe life? in fellowship forever with God as we were intended? Or will we spend our entire existence alone, separated from God forever? What will happen? Jesus enters the courtroom as our advocate. He's our defense attorney. But I want to make something here very, very clear because I think it's too often been misunderstood. Jesus is our defense attorney, but he is not defending us from the Father. Some have this idea in their head that the father is mean, but Jesus is nice. He's the one who protects us from the mean father who would just as soon chuck a lightning bolt at us. Wrong. The father is not the one who has brought the accusation against us. Do we understand that? The father is not the one who has brought the accusation against us. He is not our accuser. According to the Bible, our accuser is Satan. You know, that's actually what his his name means. He's our accuser. And he's the prosecuting attorney in this courtroom. And he stands up and points his finger at us and yells, Sinner! Sinner! And he pleads with the righteous judge to destroy us. But Jesus stands up and he assures the judge. That justice has already been served. He points to his own cross and says the proper fines for the defendant's sin have already been paid. And there are no outstanding charges against us. He is our advocate. And the righteous judge, our loving heavenly father, bangs his gavel. And in a voice that echoes throughout galaxies, says, not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Did he take a bribe? (laughs) Did he choose to overlook the reality of what was happening? Did he bend the rules because after all, he's God who can bend the rules? Justice was served. Justice was served. Courtroom dramas, this is usually the moment where the judge says to the bailiff, Bailiff, come and release the defendant to his own recognizance. Okay, we're belaboring the metaphor here, right? We're taking it way too far. But is that not what God has said when he said, come release, release the defendant into their zone? Release them into the eternal life of abundance and divine blessing that's been prepared for them. There is no longer any charge against them. The records have been expunged. It's vanished. Jeopardy has attached. There's nothing that can ever, ever, ever come against this defendant again. The advocate has spoken. The trial has ended. It's over. 
prosecutor says, oh, but, but, but what about, and the judge says, sit down, sit down. There's no nuance here. There's no shades of gray. You cannot complicate this matter any further. It is black or white. I have said not guilty. Case closed. I wonder if you've struggled to hear that in your own heart. As chief sinner at Hobson Road Community Church, can I tell you, I have. I have. It's so much easier for me to believe the condemnation that the plaintiff sends my way. So much easier. Sometimes. Than it is to trust in the words of my father. Not guilty. Not guilty. Enter now into the fullness of that life. Could we covenant together to remind one another in word and in deed and in action that it need not be that complicated, that God cannot lie, that his love for you cannot be broken, that his grace for you is without measure, that his forgiveness for you is without qualification, that his joy in you overflows again and again and again. And that the message of Jesus, if you have received it, is that your real life, not just the sustaining living and breathing that you've done this far. No, 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 no. The breath of God within you, the divine life that you were created for, your real life begins today. And nothing will ever stop it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for your word today. My prayer isn't that you would help our minds to wrap themselves around the complexity of all you have said. Uh, on the contrary, <laughs> would you tell our brains and our anxiety and our self-doubt and the condemning voices that we hear, would you, tell, would you order them to stand down? To stand down. Stand down. That we would hear what you have said. That we would stand upon the trustworthiness only of your word. Lord, the eternal Zoe, this side of heaven, doesn't mean that life is going to be giggles every day. We know that. But it does mean that there is a strong tower that we can run into where we are saved. It does mean that there is a sustaining power in our life against which the enemies of God cannot stand. Oh no, they've been scattered. It does mean, it does mean that there is a joy-filled blessing from our Savior that covers us like an umbrella, that surrounds us like a hedge, that upholds us as a firm foundation, and that we live all the days of our lives in that status. Remind us of that by your Spirit. 
Remind us of that in the words we speak one to another. Fill us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, HRCC, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. When you leave, you're going to want to greet a friend. You're going to want to get a special greeting to Beth. I think also for Zoe today. I think good greeting for Zoe. We've got a couple Zoes in the house today, if I'm not mistaken. So have a wonderful, wonderful, blessed week.